This is the Becker's Healthcare Women's Leadership Podcast. I'm Molly Gamble, your host, Vice President of Editorial for Becker's Healthcare and Editor-in-Chief of Becker's Hospital Review. Today, I'm happy to speak with Professor Asha Cesar. Asha is an adjunct assistant professor of health administration at New York University's Robert F. Wagner Graduate School of Public Service and the executive director of the Catholic Health Services of Long Island Population Health Management Entity, CHS Physician Partners. In this role, Asha manages the administration, operations, and performance of the health system value-based contract portfolio, which touches the lives of more than 100,000 New Yorkers. Asha has held positions in program operations and health policy for Mount Sinai Health System, Northwell Health, the National Governors Association, and other nonprofit and government agencies. She has subject matter expertise in IPAs, ACOs, ambulatory network development, Medicare regulatory and legislative affairs, quality performance improvement, and cost containment strategies. She earned her MPH in health policy from the George Washington University and her bachelor's in organizational communications from Northeastern University. Asha, thank you very much for joining me for this podcast. Thank you so much for the opportunity. This is a tremendous honor. So, you know, your introduction gives our listeners just a glimpse into your deep expertise in healthcare policy and the experience you've built overseeing several value-based reimbursement initiatives at major New York health systems. Asha, how did you become interested in the policy side of healthcare to begin with? Well, it's funny because uh, the first year or two of my undergraduate program, I thought I wanted to be the next Anthony Bourdain or Christiane Amanpour from CNN, where, you know, at the time I wanted to write and produce documentary films covering human interest stories. You know, I was always moved by stories of adversity and how people overcame situations that seemed impossible. Uh, And in some ways, I, I found it motivational. I did a few internships in marketing and communications where I got to pitch stories for people like Diane Sawyer and Barbara Walters, but it was soon after that I realized I wanted to be on the other side, if you will, and have a hand in, you know, either designing programs or enacting policy at some level that addressed many of the types of human rights and healthcare related issues I found interesting. Um, You know, I think my general interest in healthcare, let alone health policy, really came from lived experience, watching my father who for years suffered from your textbook diabetes-related complications that ultimately led to him uh, being on dialysis for roughly 13 years before his passing. Um, And now this was someone who was a practicing dentist who was medically educated, but for whatever reason was continuously subjected to unwarranted medical practice variation, where it ultimately negatively impacted his quality of life and disease prognosis. And much of the sort of you know, variation we witnessed related to things like the administration of medications that may not have taken into account adverse side effects that would impact the patient on dialysis, varying and and sometimes conflicting medical advice regarding surgical procedures, et cetera. You know, and if, if that wasn't enough, we also as a family sort of witnessed both implicit and overt racism across the care continuum during the time that he was alive. Um, I think once I was able to correlate medical practice variation and health disparity to health policy management, the rest started to slowly come together. Um, So once I decided that I wanted to work in healthcare, I pursued my master's of public health at the George Washington University in DC, uh, focusing on health policy. And I 
remember first coming to DC thinking I was gonna focus solely on grassroots organizing. Um, but as I moved through my coursework, I gained an appreciation for Medicaid and Medicare policy and strategic operations. Um, and so while in DC, I did a number of stints with national special, special interest groups, including uh, the National Association of Community Health Centers, the National Association of County and City Health Officials, and as you mentioned, the National Governors Association. And while I was at the Governors Association, I worked as an analyst in their health division, which serves as a think tank consultancy for governors and their staff on high priority healthcare issues. Um, we provided state leaders, including Medicaid directors, state insurance commissioners with research, policy analysis, you know, technical assistance, and resources through multi-state projects, national convenings, in-state visits, and, and publications. One particular project focused on providing technical assistance to seven states and territories over an 18-month period to develop state-level capacity to improve health and reduce cost of populations with complex care needs in Medicaid. And our team was responsible for launching the first round of technical assistance activities, which is still in effect today. So we had the opportunity to work with states like Alaska and Kentucky and Wisconsin, Colorado, you know, West Virginia, Puerto Rico, and others to help governors identify target complex care populations, to, uh, to help governors identify and target, I should say, complex care populations through data analytics, uh, developing care delivery and payment models that incentivize best practices uh, and provide, you know, return on investment through optimizing health and behavioral health care approaches and, and adding wraparound services such as transportation and housing. Um, this was also during the early time of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid State Innovation Model Grants, which was intended to advance multi-payer health care payment and delivery system reform models. And so while I found the state policy level work fascinating. You know, the organizations that were ultimately responsible for and driving much of the performance in these demonstration programs were provider organizations, including health systems. And I also felt a, a certain level of imposter syndrome, if I'm being honest, where I felt like my contributions and ability to provide detailed technical assistance would be hindered without industry or provider organization level experience. I also wanted to diversify my portfolio and see how things worked on the provider side. So with that, I went on a LinkedIn messaging spree <laughs> in what felt like a somewhat feeble attempt to connect with people, particularly in the New York market, who worked for divisions within health systems that I thought related to the work I was doing in DC. Um, and as a result, I was fortunate to get an opportunity to work with Northwell Health and then a few years later, uh, the Mount Sinai Health System on population health management activities before recently joining CHS in December of 2019. So I am grateful for people like you who enter the field and look to make changes based on um, your own experiences. Can you, can you share more and expand a bit more about what you're doing now and what your role is with NYU, Asha? Sure, sure. So, um, well, so first, as you mentioned, I, I currently serve as the executive director for um, Catholic Health Services of Long Island population health management entities. So I share oversight responsibility for the health system's value-based contract portfolio, which um, you know, include or impact patients that live across primarily the Queens, Nassau, and Suffolk County regions in New York. Um, we have an independent practice association or IPA, which includes just over 2,000 providers that are both employed by Catholic Health Services and independent community-based practices. Um, and our value-based contracts 
span the payment continuum and include shared savings, shared risk, and, and full risk arrangements across Medicaid, Medicare, and commercial. Um, additionally, we have two active um, Medicare shared savings program ACOs, as I was mentioning, um, and we participate in a number of bundled payment programs, including the Comprehensive Joint Replacement Program, or CJR, and the Bundled Payment for Care Improvement Advanced Model, also known as BPCIA. Uh, and as a health system have trended positively, both in terms of lowering costs and improving clinical quality, particularly within the last one to two years. Uh, and then so outside of my role at CHS, you know, I'm an adjunct assistant professor of health administration at NYU, um, where I teach health policy through the online Masters of Health Administration program, which recently launched in January 2019, but was built really leveraging key elements of NYU's um, campus-based Masters of Public Administration program in health policy and management that's been around for, you know, 40-something plus years. So much of what, what we discuss in the course relates to Medicare and Medicaid policy, uh, the Affordable Care Act, emerging healthcare trends, et cetera. And it's probably no surprise that COVID has made for an exceptionally fascinating academic case study. And as such, you know, we really try to weave in current topics of the day into the curriculum. Now, I imagine it's an interesting time to be to be teaching, but also <laughs> I can't, I'm hard pressed to imagine a more important uh, and determinative time. So you know, on, on, on that note, in digging into your policy expertise, we are just days away now from an upcoming presidential election. And right. regardless of party and regardless of candidate, you mentioned Medicare, Medicaid policy, ACA, ACOs, um, right. bundles, CJR. I'm curious, what is the number one healthcare policy action you most want to see enacted over the next year? Yeah, yeah, I'm smiling over here. This is an interesting question. They are, these are really um, unprecedented times we are living in, where our political process seems more polarized than I think it's ever been. Um, you know, I think the top buzzwords we've heard this year are, you know, as you were alluding to, Medicare for all and all who want it, expanding provisions of the Affordable Care Act, including Medicaid expansion, you know, lowering prescription drug prices and enabling a certain level of price transparency among hospitals and insurers. From my perspective, uh, access to health care is an important driver of health and is, you know, pending this election outcome most on the line. I think the COVID pandemic really surfaced many key health challenges, including variation in morbidity and mortality and health inequities that, quite frankly, were always there but unfortunately were further exacerbated due to institutional and system, systemic uh, deficiencies. Fundamentally, whether it's enhanced provisions to the existing Affordable Care Act or some enactment of a Medicare for those who wanted approach will be required, I think, to, to further promote this, this notion of increased access. Um, you know, I have personal mixed feelings about Medicare for all. I think that may be a long-term solution to addressing you know, uh, cost and, and care variation, et cetera. But, you know, it, it's, it's certainly not a policy action that will be instituted even within the next two years, if I had to bet. And, you know, Joe Biden was, of course, you know, vice president when the Affordable Care Act was enacted and remains a strong supporter. So while I'm not sure either candidate would support a Medicare for all approach at this time, I do think Biden would at least be open to offering a public health uh, plan option similar to Medicare. In, uh, in addition to the current private health plan options available on the health insurance marketplace. 
Um, I will say, interestingly, much of the value-based contracting work, you know, that uh, the sort of space that I work in has historically been considered bipartisan, which I think will continue regardless of the outcome in November and will be, will um, help to further support uh, the development of these programs. Um, we have seen, you know, under the Trump administration, a desire to further move down the payment continuum and move towards financial risk. And this is especially true when we talk about the bundled payment programs, both CJR and BPCIA, and the uh, Pathways to Success Medicare Shared Savings Program, uh, uh, ACO, which calls for, you know, the gradual advancement into risk over a five-year agreement period. So we'll, we'll see. <laughs> Such an interesting overview. I think I, I can't think of many things these days we can call bipartisan. So the fact that value-based reimbursement models are relatively bipartisan, even and I think um, let's call some attention to that. Take what you can get, right? Yeah. So you want to preserve ACA, enhance enhance it by adding more provisions to expand access. It sounds as though you have some some skepticism about Medicare for all, at least how it's been broadly communicated. Um, as something right. that could be drawn up in a relatively short time frame. Is there anything you would add to that? When you hear people say we need Medicare for all, do you have anything you would add on or any caveats you would point out to them? Well, I mean, I think, you know, for in order for us to work our way up to a universal healthcare-like system, it, we're going to have to sort of take an incremental approach. I don't know that, uh, you know, an, a complete overhaul of the healthcare system as we know it where, you know, we completely annihilate the private insurance market is um, going to be um, a sufficient approach, especially coming out of the gate. Um, I also would say though, that when we say Medicare for all, I think sometimes it's sort of used as a catch-all phrase where certainly, you know, it, Bernie Sanders has made Medicare for all, ex you know, exceptionally popular and his sort of version of this type of program would require um, basically a, a one a single payer system where uh, in effect the private insurance market as we know it um, would not have the same sort of role or function but there are other Medicare for all type policies and I think it sort of gets thrown into or uh, you know included under this sort of broader definition you know that includes things like you know a Medicare uh, public option a Medicaid public option um, you know, a model in which the um, the enrollment age is dropped to 50, and it'll, you know, for example, it allows people who are between the ages of 50 to 64 to potentially sign on, you know, voluntarily through the insurance marketplaces. Um, you know, a similar sort of approach on the Medicaid sort of um, public option approach, where Medicaid is then expanded to people who, um, you know, might not currently be eligible at the moment, and again, could access those services or, or those, those plan benefits, um, you know, through the health insurance marketplace. So I think, uh, I think we have to be careful when we say Medicare for all, because it's not, that's not the only sort of policy proposal. Um, and there are different, there are certainly different ways, I think, to get ultimately to that goal. But I, I, I have a harder time Think, believing that, you know, coming out of the gate, we just completely revamp everything and, and move to that sort of model. I think we need to get some more clarity about how it would be financed and if the current proposals are in fact sufficient. Um, you know, th there would be an, a tremendous change to the reimbursement structure for providers and for hospital systems. 
And I think that's a source of concern that would need to be addressed. So there, there's a number, it's, it's such a multifaceted sort of um, policy proposal that I think sometimes the, the nuance gets lost when we just casually throw around Medicare for all without understanding, one, that that's its own separate sort of policy and that there are others that are different. Um, and what it would take to actually be successful in that sort of model. Right. Yeah, it, it reminds me of how ultimately, you know, convenient slogans can be, but ultimately really problematic because you get to a point where you're kind of having apples and oranges conversations. Like you said, Medicare public option. Is that Medicare for all? Is that what we're talking about here? I, I think yeah. you bring up a really good point. And I think campaigns going forward, I hope would revisit the effectiveness of everything going under these slogans, um, especially as the details really do ultimately vary as, as things. Right. Forward. Yeah. But, you know, let's move. We talked about policy quite a bit, and you have experience in both cost containment efforts and then also population health management, as you've really underscored here. And as many health systems face losses and financial pressures that have been brought on by the pandemic, how would you recommend they approach cost containment in light of the social determinants of health that this pandemic has just so brought renewed attention to over the past seven months, underscored, they are glaring, they're glaring and you can't uh, miss them right now. I'm curious what line items might be tempting for a C-level executive to cut or curb that from your vantage point and viewed from the lens of population health are really quite important and should be protected. Yeah, great question. Um, COVID, of course, significantly impacted the bottom line for many health systems and other provider organizations. From where I sit, maintaining population health staffing infrastructure, particularly for care management and provider engagement, will continue to be critical to the goal of reducing total costs, avoidable utilization, and really beginning to address the social determinants of health. You know, typically care management and uh, provider engagement are the largest departments within a population health enterprise. You know, care management teams that I've seen can span anything from 40 to over 200 plus um, uh, staff members that are inclusive of, you know, nurse care managers, diabetes educators, social workers, um, sometimes pharmacists. Um, and they are really critical to getting, uh, sort of meeting the patient where they are, um, helping to address some of the topics raised earlier around, you know, health literacy access or perceived access to healthcare, um, helping to sort of communicate what these programs even mean and why it would be beneficial to pick up the phone when a care manager calls. And, you know, likewise on the provider engagement side, you know, you none of this is possible without getting the buy-in from your provider um, sort of cohort. And this is both, you know, any of your employed faculty as well as your community-based, you know, sort of independent practices that, for example, might be participating in an IPA arrangement. So those two, for me anyway, are, I think, critical um, and, you know, are really the, the key levers that when we, when we look at um, these types of value-based contracting arrangements, those are the two key levers that ultimately help to drive performance. Um, and then from there, the sort of second tier, once, you've, once we've sort of addressed the staffing concerns, then you can sort of address, you know, okay, what are ways that we can, you know, for example, better weave in uh, elements of, of the social determinants of health into some of our workflows. You know, one example of that that I can think of on the commercial side 
is, um, you know, a, a number of commercial payers really coming to the table and provi providing incentives to do things like engage with community-based organizations to, you know, for example, drop Z codes, which are a special uh, group of codes provided um, for the reporting of factors influencing health status and, and contact with health services. Um, and so I've personally been very encouraged by, by seeing that sort of work happening. And I think, you know, and, I, and I, it's nice to see that the sort of commercial market is following suit with what's happening in the sort of Medicaid and Medicare space, you know, as it relates to, um, you know, programs like Medicaid. Um, we in New York, we just finished the five-year uh, delivery system reform incentive payment program, or or DISRIP. I, I tell you, healthcare is all about the acronyms, right? Um, and that just came to an end, uh, you know, uh, later uh, in, in late 2020. Um, but that was really one of the most radical demonstration models that sought to address some of these key social determinants of health-related issues that I think more and more we're seeing sort of emerge in the, um, you know, in, 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 in across news outlets now. And that includes things like behavioral health, um, you know, and for example, co-location of primary care services and behavioral health. Um, leveraging things like hotspotter uh, hot analyses where you can actually look at a combination of, you know, claims data, clinical quality data, um, you know, data from CBOs, uh, you know, uh, mark other sort of regional and market trend data, and literally hotspot areas either by, um, you know, racial uh, or ethnic makeup, age, um, socioeconomic status, level of education, et cetera, and identify whether there are sort of correlations between some of those factors and things like um, avoidable hospitalization rates or increased um, sort of chronicity um, uh, of, you know, multiple chronic or, or complex conditions. And so I think that will really be, you know, if we're talking about moving from a space where, you know, depending on sort of where you fall on the maturity continuum, moving from a one-size-fits-all uh, population health management approach to really leveraging those types of resources to hone in on specific um, you know, marginalized communities, uh, specific demographics, and creating care programs that are that are specifically tailored to address the unique needs of those populations. I think that's, you know, that's where we'll start to see, um, you know, some some really um, interesting trends. I think emerge. I think your your policy expertise shines through even in that answer because you point to the correlations of various uh, mechanisms and staffing in the health system and the repercussions, the downstream effects. So, you know, population health staffing, how that and the care managers can affect health literacy, how integrated behavioral and primary care can affect readmission rates. Um, just really, really important correlations to mention because I think uh, on paper, you know, you might not anticipate how some any sort of fluctuation to those two examples, for instance, could change the downstream costs you see uh, in the months and years to come. So, you know, to wrap up here, I, I wanted to touch on your, your molding young minds, as they say, and if they're not young, they're getting into public policy. Um, perhaps they don't have, you know, as much experience as you do as their assistant professor. But diversity representation in policymaking institutions, it just really determines whether the legislative and policy outcomes 
reflect the diversity of our communities. And to, you know, to borrow the line from Hamilton, we need to see diversity <laughs> and inclusion in the room where it happens. So what message would you share with younger generations of people in, especially in underrepresented groups, to encourage their engagement with public policy? Yeah, Lynn Manuel really hit the nail on the head here. Um, <laughs> this is near and dear to my heart, partly because I have a personal bias. Um, you know, my mom is Guyanese Indian, my father is Haitian, and we grew up in a socially, social, uh, socioeconomically and, and racially diverse community of Eastern Long Island. And I think, uh, you know, sort of as a result of that, um, you know, while I, I think there, the, there was an inherent um, benefit or, or, or leg up that we had coming from a uh, diverse um, sort of um, community, um, and I think coming into the real world, I sort of just expected that every room that I walk into would look very much like, um, you know, sort of the places that I was familiar with as a high school student, as a middle school student, um, you know, in centralized Long Island. Um, and quickly came to realize that that's not the case. And in some cases, you might be the only person that looks like you in a room at an, an entire conference of thousands of people, you know, at, uh, at a table making business and strategic decisions. So, and, you know, I should say before even addressing what younger generations can do, I, I want to note that for those in a leadership capacity, if there aren't enough seats at the table, then add the chairs, right? I, I believe it is the fundamental responsibility of anyone in a leadership capacity to build career ladders for those who work either directly or indirectly with you and solicit the input from everyone on your team, regardless of their title, years of experience or position. And you know, it, it's also the responsibility of leadership to ensure their teams are diverse, not only culturally, racially, um, but in terms of experience, learning style, years of experience, et cetera. Um, you know, I had, the fortune of having executive sponsors and mentors early on in my career who who took a chance on me with honestly little to go off of other than you know ambition and drive and i think for the younger generation of leaders coming up particularly those from black and brown communities of color you know i would say don't be intimidated if you walk into a room and there isn't anyone that looks like you believe in yourself and know that you have something that you can contribute and that um, and, and make it your business to align with somebody who has your best interests at heart and establish executive presence, um, identify mentors, colleagues, you know, um, people who who want to see you flourish um, and don't be afraid to ask for things that you want. And I think it's so easy, you know, whether you're a person of color, whether you're a woman, whether you're both, um, especially if you if you are sort of considered um you know uh, on the younger side of the spectrum here you know that can be very intimidating and you know i mentioned imposter syndrome earlier and I, I sometimes to be honest i still feel like i have that i think you know um i'm one of the youngest sort of folks to, to hold an executive level position you know in, in my current role and one of the youngest to serve in an adjunct um you know sort of uh, role at, uh, through NYU Wagner, and I, I, it's a tremendous responsibility, and I take it very seriously. Um, and uh, but uh, you know, again, I think 
if it weren't for good leadership that I was fortunate enough to have come through my life and, and really provide guidance, um, I, I don't know where I would be. And, you know, the leadership piece matters a lot here because that's, those, that's also who can dictate things like where you recruit from, right? You know, maybe spend some time trying to be more deliberate about recruiting from, you know, special interest groups that represent uh, underrepresented groups <laughs> uh, or, you know, uh, recruiting from historically black universities or, you know, something that would allow for your candidate pool to be representative of that diverse sort of set of um, experience, learning style, you know, um, cultural makeup, et cetera. I'm so glad you brought that up because it is such a two-way street. And although my question was about your encouragement for younger groups specifically, you know, I think so often th these issues of representation can come down to the underrepresented group figuring out ways to outsmart it um to kind of cope with it on their own where it's really like you said are the leaders adding chairs are they fixing the broken rungs in their in their ladder to advancement um, of course we all need to be empowered with personal mechanisms and methods to you know advocate for ourselves but if we don't have the people who are in positions of power making that easier building allyship around us it's not enough to have a seat at the table but are you being heard are people making space and not interrupting you and asking your opinion? I think all of those are just such important dynamics that too often it becomes a, the women's work for this podcast specifically about, well, how are you coping with this? How are you outsmarting this or getting around it? Mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. I really appreciate you bringing up leadership's responsibility to make sure that this is not, um, they're not working against us in this regard, that this is a two-way street, like I said. Okay. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, Asha, any final thoughts for you? It's been such a pleasure catching up with you and uh, hearing all of your comments on everything from Medicare for All to diversity and inclusion and policymaking spaces. Uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed this, but I want to give you the chance to sum up any other final thoughts you might have. No, I, I appreciate the opportunity. I'm a huge fan of the podcast and, and thank you again for the opportunity. This is great. Oh, it was my pleasure. Well, on behalf of Beckers, stay safe, stay healthy, and we wish you the very best. Thank you.